Join us now on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. And it is the start of another week and the start of another collector show. I am Harold Nickel. Coming up later in the interview segment of the program, we're going to learn all about collecting antique fishing lures. I don't think I ever kept enough lures or did not lose enough to even start a collection of antique lures, but it turns out that there are people who can not only fish successfully with lures, but can keep them and collect them. Learn all about that coming up in the interview segment of the program. And then with Father's Day just behind us, our friend Heather Gallegos has a collection that will remind us of what we give Dad for Father's Day. A collection of things apropos of Father's Day coming up later in the show with Heather Gallegos. Last week we skipped the news segment because of the length of the show with our uh, conversation with the people from the Schultz Museum. So a few extra items this week. And I want to talk first of all about some news about Disney collectibles, and specifically Mickey Mouse. If you own things from the Disney parks that are pre-1970, those are considered vintage collectibles. And even though the uh, parks for Disney are nothing more, at least in my opinion, than uh, platforms for retail sales, if you own things from the parks pre-1970, those are going to be considered pretty valuable collectibles. And I want to give you a couple of prices on uh, Disney items. If you have a celluloid Mickey and Pluto cyclist wind-up toy, and a celluloid is just an early kind of a plastic, and it dates back uh, into the 50s, that thing might be worth over $6,000. And a tin Mickey Mouse wind-up circus train is worth $6,050. Wow. A complete copy of the first Mickey Mouse book um, even if it shows a little wear, is estimated at $3,500. Stife, which of course is the stuffed toy company out of Germany, a Mickey Velveteen hand puppet in good condition is worth $1,250. Wind-up Mickey as a balloon seller, tin lithographed, made in Japan, $1,150. So if you own Disney memorabilia from pre-1970, those things could be pretty pricey and the better shape they're in of course the more likely it is that they're going to command a better price but there's just tons of Disney stuff everywhere you look there's Disney stuff I was recently at uh, Disney property and um, I think the only thing I bought while I was there was an umbrella but um, still there's just so much of it so if you collect Disney stuff uh, Disney items just recognize that it isn't going to be worth anything except to you anytime soon. Just the sheer volume of the things that they make in sale. Okay, on to a conversation about baseball cards. Baseball has been one of America's favorite pastimes for more than 150 years. It dates back to the 1880s when baseball cards were first issued by Goodwin and Company and they issued them to promote cigarettes. So in case you didn't know, baseball cards didn't start coming with gum until really the 1950s. They were used to promote baseball cards and they were used to promote other kinds of things. The Cracker Jack Company, of course, the popcorn and uh, peanut company used baseball cards to promote their stuff. Tip Top Bread 
issued baseball cards, as did Sporting Life magazine. And it wasn't until the 50s when the uh, Topps company started issuing them with gum. So if you can stumble across a baseball card that was made to promote a cigarette or bread or a magazine, you're really on to something. Now, there are dealers that will sell you these. If you're going to buy an item that's that old or that rare, be very, very careful about uh, what they call the provenance or there's a certificate that proves that that item is as old as it's supposed to be because one of the big problems in collecting those kinds of rare items, anything pre-1950 in terms of sports collectibles, you are going to run into problems with counterfeits. So be very cautious. Um, don't part with a big bunch of money unless you are really comfortable that what you're buying is what the dealer says that it is. Nothing against dealers. Don't be offended. But we have to be cautious because I read a story uh, last week. I'm not going to share it on the show about counterfeit cookie jars showing up on uh, popular auction sites. And so just be cautious. Don't part with several thousand dollars unless you're comfortable. There's a guy named Fred Powell who lives in Grapevine, Texas, which is a great uh, town in East Texas. And he collects 45s, 33s, and 78s. And these are records. And he's been collecting them for only 15 years, but has assembled a collection big enough that he can open up a store where he can buy, sell, and trade all kinds of records. And we've talked about this, although not lately on the show, collecting vinyl. There's people who not only like to collect vinyl in terms of collectible recordings, but prefer the way the vinyl recordings sound. And this man in Grapevine, Texas, has an entire store front devoted to his hobby. He only does it to support buying and selling different things. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, number one, I like Grapevine, Texas. But secondly, he collects some very early and rare recordings from country and western artists like the Do <laughs> the Light Crust Doughboys, boy, say that ten times fast, and Bob Wills. And for people who listen to country music these days, country music has evolved to where it's closer to rock and roll, at least in my opinion. But if you have an old Bob Wills record, that's what country music started out sounding like and, and being about. Um, I thought that was an interesting thing to collect. If I were going to collect 45s, I think I'd look for very early country and western records. Patsy Cline would be another artist to focus on. But this guy has an entire store in Grapevine just to store his hobby and buy, sell, and trade. How cool is that? And then finally, there's a museum where a man started collecting Civil War items. And I thought the way he started collecting them in 1959 to pay for a knife was an interesting story. In 1959, hauling water for an elderly neighbor. Hauling water for an elderly neighbor was all 12-year-old Gary Simpkins needed to help pay for his first military relic, which was a Civil War bayonet. And he says, I really wanted that bayonet because the Civil War bug had bit me. It was the first time I had my hands on something from the Civil War. So he paid a dollar down for it and then hauled water for this woman for four more weeks so he could continue to pay for that bayonet. And 50 years later, Mr. Simpkins is still collecting 
Civil War items, and he has started another museum, a Civil War museum. Now, he served in Vietnam, brought a lot of things back from there, but has collected things from a number of conflicts, the First and Second World War, all the way up through Desert Storm. But I just thought the way he started collecting as a 12-year-old boy hauling water to, <laughs> to make installment payments on a Civil War bayonet was quite something. And if you're looking for a place to go this summer, I really recommend uh, Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. It's a great place to go. Tons of history if you're interested in the Civil War. And you can uh, start a nice Civil War collection there because people pick up uh, all kinds of things. Not so much old uniforms, but spent rounds of ammunition. Um, oh, they used to call them, I guess, uh, some kind of shot that they uh, shot out of their rifles. All kinds of things that you can just literally pick up on the ground. And if you like ghosts, and who doesn't, Gettysburg is thought to be quite haunted. When I was there, I didn't see a ghost or hear a ghost, but I'm told that lots of people do. So, that's the news from the world of collecting for this week. Stay tuned. Coming up next, we're going to talk about antique fishing lures, all here on The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel. It's the interview segment of The Collector Show this week, and with it being summertime, what better time to talk about fishing and collecting fishing lures? And we're fortunate to be joined by Gabby Talkington. And Gabby, welcome to The Collector Show. Thank you. Now, let's talk first of all about collecting uh, antique fishing lures. When I used to fish, I never saved many lures because most of them ended up tangled in trees or hung on roots underwater. Tell us about... Uh, how you can go about starting a collection of antique lures? Well, it's, it's fairly simple. Usually at uh, any garage sale, flea market, uh, and there's also tackle shows. Uh, people always seem to go back to what they fished with as a kid. And right. So that right now, that means a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff from the 60s and 70s, which... We don't consider old in, in the tackle hobby, but which appeals to the newer collector, and it's starting to become collectible. Mm -hmm. And you can you can get in at a real affordable price. Now is a great time because with the economy, uh, like any other collectible, it's it's down. So it's a good time to buy to buy and uh, get get something going that you're interested in. Now, I want to come back to what the antique lures, but let's talk for a minute about the lures that were uh, popular in the 60s and 70s. I didn't fish in the 60s, but I did in the 70s. And I fished with, uh, oh, they looked like spoons, and they had, uh, like, bug eyes on them. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember what they were called, but is that the kind of thing that people are looking at? Some people do collect those traditionally uh, lures that are made of metal, don't have a great lot of collectible value. Uh -huh. Reason being, one reason being, uh, they were almost impervious to damage, and they were much easier to produce. So they were just produced in the millions and millions. Uh -huh. uh, guys that are on a budget or want decorations, uh, they are great. But uh, as a collectible, uh, they they just the same 
stature as, as an old wood lure, let's put it that way. Okay, so the the more modern materials, and, I, and you said uh, metal, and I'm I'm sure the same thing is also true for plastic. Well, plastic, plastic is for metal. Uh, matter. You know, they started using actually a form of plastic back in the 30s and uh, gained popularity. Then they went to full plastic. And some of the plastic lures from the 60s, 70s are now highly collectible. Mm-hmm. Um, give us an example of, um, of a highly collectible plastic fishing lure. Uh, pla- plastic lures would be head and river runs. Okay. Uh, they started making those in the 40s. Uh, from what I understand, they still make a few over in Japan. Uh, some some folks have started collecting uh, rebels, which were a great lure and still are a great lure for fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the old standby, the head pumpkin seed, which has always been appealing because it's got the cute factor. It looks like a little, looks like an actual little fish. Uh huh. Now, one thing I never could quite sort out um, was why why we would use a lure versus uh, live bait, unless there just wasn't any live bait available. Is there a good reason for that? Uh, you know, I I don't know what the, what the reason is. I know there's an awful lot of places that uh, uh, didn't allow didn't allow the use of live bait, and that became prevalent. Huh. Uh, you know, probably. 40 years ago uh, a lot of places you can't you can't introduce say if you're going to go minnow fishing you can't introduce minnows into a lake because it's a uh, you know non-specific species so you have to use lures okay and a lot of fishermen just enjoyed uh, implying that natural action as they casted the artificial bait see I never would have thought uh, minnows equaled um you know, a, a, a new species being introduced. But I guess that kind of makes sense when you think about plant-wise and even animal-wise, some of the... Sure, sure. I know that right. here in Michigan and uh, in Texas, where I grew up, we had a terrible problem with um, new species that were introduced only because... Uh, ooh, are you there? I'm here. Okay, sorry. Yeah, new species that were introduced because of um, boats cleaning out their uh, hulls. Right. And... Uh, different kinds of mollusks and plants being introduced into the ecosphere and just take over. So that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm going to assume that you fish. Is that a good assumption? Okay. I, I, uh, almost, almost all collectors are fishermen. Yeah, I, I would have guessed that. Now, tell me about your favorite kind of lure. Is there any in particular that you fish with more than another? Uh, you know, I... I usually like to stick with uh, top water type lures mm-hmm. uh, simply because I figure if you can, uh, number number one, whether you catch fish or not, it's nice to look at the little lure going across the top. Oh, sure. And that it's, it's a bigger pleasure yet when, some, when you actually tempt a fish uh, from the layers to come up and, and hit your bait. It kind of, uh, it, it adds a little excitement to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think they call those top waters. Right. Yeah. Now, in terms of collecting, when did you graduate from being an avid fisherman to being an avid uh, lure collector? Uh, I actually occurred about uh, 20, 25 years ago uh, due 
to uh, disability. I was kind of to give up fishing for a while, stay at home, and uh, offered. I, I actually offered some of my fishing gear, my good fishing gear back then, for sale. And a, an older gentleman happened to call me and say, "Would you be willing to trade it?" He had happened to have some lures from the uh, 1910s, 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, made a trade, and uh, from there, the uh, hobby, uh, as my late wife used to say, went terribly askew. <laughs> well, as so many as so many hobbies frequently do, go terribly askew. Now, how? Sorry, go ahead. I, I say I've, I've got them everywhere now, and uh, uh, they say sometimes, sometimes when you get in, you can you can get in and go out and go on to something else. But I'm definitely a lifer. Oh, good for you! Now I know you have uh, a couple of websites: um, right. AntiqueLures.com and AntiqueLureCollectible.com. Tell us about those. Well, they're both uh, they're both designed to help to help people go to. Uh, if they have an old lure, they can go on the site. And, uh, Antique Lures is uh, Antique Lure site is is actually the biggest site. And it was the first site on the uh, web and has won several awards. Mm. Uh, it was actually designed by a friend of mine uh, who was a collector for a while, and I took it for. And it's it helps people identify uh, their lures, grade their lures uh, as to condition. And gives values as to as to what what that old lure that grandpa or great grandpa now might have fished with is worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's like, a lot of help. Yeah, and like any other collectible, the one thing that that remains constant with uh, value is condition. Condition yes. will always be the biggest determining factor, and. Governing the value. There's an awful lot of old lures out there that have had a lot of use. We call them old warriors. Mm-hmm. Uh, fishermen back in the 1910s, 1920s didn't know that there were going to be people like myself elected. So, no. uh, you know, they, they used them for fishing, which is what they were supposed to do. Sure. And, you know, other collectibles that we talk about on this program, we get into the, uh, you know, the condition. And sometimes people will buy. Um, something to use, uh, oh, like a cookie jar, take for example, uh, buy one to actually use, and then they'll buy another one for their collection and not take it out of the that's, box. That, that, that's right. We have an awful lot of uh, collectors, myself included. I always will take old lures with me when I go fishing, and I mean lures from the 20s and 30s yeah. that have seen a lot of use that really do not have any collectible value, their decoration. Uh, or you put them on the board and say these are the old warriors that did what they were supposed to do, and uh, it's odd that new lures uh, actually give the same action as these older lures, and these old ones will still catch a lot of fish. Where were the uh, early ones made, Gabby? Were they handmade here in the U.S., or were they made somewhere else? Pardon me? I was just wondering where the... Uh lures were made were they made here or were they carved by hand or how were they made most of them were made in the factories i mean uh you know the ones you know starting about 1920 they were mass produced in the factories hidden in michigan Crickshub in indiana south bend and also in indiana then shakespeare the big four companies oh sure 
they made a, they made a lot of them, and uh, you know still con- still continues selling them today. Yeah, I, I uh, am familiar with the Shakespeare. They sell uh, and make um, oh all kinds of tackle, fishing poles, and reels and things like that. Sure. That's right. Now, how big is your collection, Gabby? How many antique lures do you I, own? I, I've actually downsized over the years, uh, being a collector for that long, and, and like other collectors that I talk to frequently, friends I have, uh, you collect one particular item or two particular things for so long, you finally get to that point where it's really hard to put something new into your collection. Right. Uh, and you don't want to lose interest. So what happens is start another collection. Uh, after that one, you start another collection. So it's not, it's not hard to have four or five or even more varying interest, either color-wise or by one particular company or one particular color, uh, one particular style of bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one time, uh, you know, my collection was probably over 2,000 different lures. Wow. Right now, right now it's down to probably, I, I'd say 400. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as as I've gone through the hobby, I have become very condition, condition conscious. Mm-hmm. So almost every lure in the, in the collection is going to be excellent or better. So for people who are interested in starting a collection or maybe, like you said, um, came across a grandparent's old fishing lures, they can go to your site, uh, Antique Lures, and, sure. the, and they can grade them, see how much they're potentially worth. Yeah, see how much they're worth. If they don't know, uh, all they need to do is email. They can send me pictures. I answer all the emails promptly. Oh, no kidding. And, uh, uh, sure, I mean, uh, you know, my contact information is up there. Something they want to praise. If it's, I get an awful lot of uh, family appraisals. In other words, somebody passes away. There's an estate. Right. Should I sell them? Should I keep them? Should I give them to my children? Things of that nature. Of course. And uh, naturally, the monetary value comes in. There are some things that, uh, and quite often, the sentimental value is much greater than the monetary value. And you have to be candid and tell them that. And uh, you know, I've got I've got my dad's vision stuff here. Huh. It, it, as far as monetary value, there isn't anything there. But sentimental value. There's a whole lot there. Sure, I think a lot of people would uh, would share that opinion. So, what is the most? Um, we're talking about monetary value. What would you say is the most valuable lure that you've ever come across? Uh, I, I I I've come across several, uh, and this was what what we re, we collectors referred to as back in the day, mm-hmm. and that means. 1999-2000, when the economy was at its peak, sure. when prices on almost all collectibles sh- shot through the roof. Yep, uh, it was not uncommon to have lures, specific lures, not a whole lot of them. I'm talking about the very uh, a minority. Uh, bring twenty five to thirty thousand. Wow. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And now, now today, you have to realize, in, in today's economy, those same lures, probably 10. Yeah. But still. Which is still a, still a lot of money. Absolutely. Now, you know, yeah. 
fishing the way I used to fish, you don't want to get your ten thousand dollar lure hung in the trees. No. <laughs> Not, at all. Not I think that one would be in a safe deposit box. Okay. Well, Gabby Talkington, thank you so much for being with us on the Collector Show this week. We have never talked about um, collecting fishing lures on the show before. And if you don't mind, give us your, uh, you have two websites. Can you give us those addresses? I have, I have two websites. One of them is www.antiquelures.com. And then the sister site, uh, and it's geared more towards Shakespeare lures, mm-hmm. is www.antiquelurecollectibles.com. Uh, my contact information is on both of those sites. If anybody has questions, if anybody wants to get into the hobby, uh, I'd welcome an email. I can give them information uh, on joining our, our nationwide club. Oh, sure. 5,000 5, or more members right now, the National Fishing Lure Collectors Club. We have shows all over the USA. It's a great club. They put out great publications, and it's uh, for $25 a year, you get two of the best books you'll ever get, plus you'll meet others who are in the hobby. So it's, a, like you say, it's a great hobby. Yeah, it sounds like it, and it sounds like um, so many other hobbies we've talked about on this program where right. like-minded right. people can get together. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you again, Gabby Talkington, for being with us on The Collector Show. And uh, stay tuned for more on The Collector Show coming up next. You know, this past week was Father's Day, and um, you have to be creative if you've given your father everything you can think of for the past 50 years. But creativity isn't just limited to gift selection. It can be also inclusive of different kinds of popular Father's Day gifts. And our friend, Heather Gallegos, has done a great deal of research for us on a very popular Father's Day gift item. And Heather... Welcome. Hi, Harold. Thank you. Now, tell us what you've discovered about popular Father's Day gift items. Well, we're going to hone in on one specific gift today, Harold, and that is the ever-popular necktie. The necktie. Yeah, the necktie. And and actually, we're going to look more at vintage neckties, mm-hmm. collecting that sort of apparel. Okay. Now, um Ties are not as popular in the workplace. I know that um, where you and I work, it's all business casual. And we don't typically wear ties unless it's um, something important. But it sounds to me like the tie continues to be a popular gift. It does. It actually really still continues to be popular. And today, men are, there's been a bit of a resurgence in people wearing ties. Okay. It's kind of a way that a man can kind of his own individual style mm-hmm. by the tie he chooses to wear. So, yeah, even though we work in a casual, a business casual environment, there are places that do still do more of a, you know, business attire mm-hmm. and wear ties, or like I said, or it just allows men to give themselves their own fashion identity. So, still a relevant gift, still a fashionable uh, thing to have around. I mean, I, I don't wear them often, but I still own neckties. But from a collectible point of view, let's talk about that. Well, there is so much out there on collecting vintage neckties, so it's not hard to find information if you're thinking of starting a collection or Mm -hmm. if you already have a collection. There is a wealth of resources out there. 
I, I found many different websites and books, and we can get into all of that in a bit. But let me zone in more on what you should be looking for if you're going to collect vintage neckties. Okay. You're going to want to look for the desirable time period of 1944 to 1952. Okay. You know, if you think back in history, we had our GIs returning from World War II. Yes. And, you know, after going through the whole stress of the war, they were looking for ways to be creative. And at that time, it, we, we, men did have to wear neckties to work. Sure, sure. So their neckties were a great way to be loud and bold. And the prints and the designs reflected that in the ties. Okay, so uh, when you come back from fighting either in the Pacific or the, or the European theater, you want something other than um, olive green to wear. <laughs> right. So, so that... I'm, I'm they were tired of that. <laughs> and so that the necktie kind of gave them a way to express themselves. And I don't want to, you know, say make a bold fashion statement, but make a bold fashion statement. It absolutely was a bold fashion statement. And so many of the websites that I found online, they had great galleries of, of photos of these vintage ties. Uh-huh. They are really individual works of art. Many of these ties were hand-painted. Mm-hmm. Salvador Dali, he, he made several of these ties I saw hundreds of pictures of ties that he made. No kidding. And some, yeah, and since some were hand-painted, no two will be alike. Even a lot of um, popular artists of the time got into making those Art Deco-style ties. So really, when you're looking at them, they're going to be very different tie to tie. And, and that also makes them very limited in the market. So then the prices, they're going to go up. So I, I had no idea that Dolly painted... Uh painted neckties. What other artists' names we might recognize did you find? I, I didn't find any other artist names that I recognized, and I, I didn't jot them down. But he was like the one that seemed most recognizable okay. that everybody would have heard of. Um, but things that you can look for on ties are, you know, cartoon or fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these hand-painted ties, a lot of them had like the hula girls or the <laughs> pin-up style <laughs> um, girls, and some get quite racy. Okay. For the time. Right. For the late 40s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to work with a guy whose last name was Coffee, and um, he wore a different kind of a coffee tie, like a cup of coffee or coffee beans on his tie. Wow. So um, that was his way of expressing himself. Sure, yeah. I mean, there are so many different styles, but it's something that you also want to think about, too, is the fabric that they're made from. Right. During that time, acetate and rayon were more of the popular fabrics. Mm-hmm. So those are going to be the ties that you want to look for. I mean, today we think of like the silk tie as yes. a nice tie to have. But when we're looking at those vintage ties, look for more of your synthetics. So that look in that area. And of course, you always want to make sure that they're in you know mint or as near mint condition as possible, because you know the more spots or stains or, or frays then they're just not going to be worth as much. But I think everybody pretty much knows that by this time. So they're not the silk tie, like the nice ones we see at the uh, at the counters these days. They're rayon, acetate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're synthetic materials that were very popular in that time frame. I wonder if they were easier to paint on Maybe. than silk. <laughs> Maybe, because the silk, it would bleed right through. Yeah, who yeah, knows? Probably so. Well, I'm not going to go start painting on any of my ties. I wouldn't. I'm, I mean, I'm just going to take your word for it. <laughs> I would leave them as they are. You know, there's also other things, though, to look for, too. I mean, if you're not really interested in, in neckties, there's mm-hmm. also bolo ties that can be made from um, precious gems. Oh, no kidding. There's uh, tie pins, tie clips, tie tacks. 
there's so many different accessories for the tie. I, I guess I didn't really realize that. So there's there's many things you can collect around ties. Okay. You don't even have to collect neckties. So um, tie pins, mm-hmm. tie clips. Um, I never liked tie pins because I never liked poking holes in my tie. Yeah. But I can remember having a tie clip. Yeah. Um, and I can remember when I had a, I had a job as a as a bagger at a grocery store back in the days when, when you didn't have to bag your own stuff. And um, they made us wear a tie to work every day. Wow. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But um, now in terms of collecting ties, we talked about what they're made of. We talked about the when after the Second World War. Right. Who collects ties these days? So many people collect ties, my friend. There are websites out there. And the one to check out is The Knot. K-N-O-T. Okay. And that stands for collectors, spelled with a K instead of a C. Sure. Collectors of nasty old times. Uh. Yeah, but I'm telling you that site is a wealth of information. But. They have. No, I was going to say nasty isn't necessarily nasty. It can be worn out, ugly. Right. Okay. Yes. Some of the patterns are quite ugly. And they they have quite a few of galleries that just have... So many different pictures. It, I mean, if you are a collector of ties, you will love this site. And it's the okay. knot. The knot, K N O T. Okay. And they also have some really interesting vintage ads by all the different makers. So, like Arrow, a name that I think a lot of people know. Sure. Um, some of their vintage ads from the fifties—they just hilarious to go back and look at them <laughs> and see like the advertising that they put out there for ties. I would be. Uh interested in seeing that i may go check that out just because i'm interested in uh in advertising because since that's what we do right right exactly well and you know there's just so many different facets to this website they not only do they have the galleries and the hall of fame they have the vintage ads they have the collector's corner where you can post your own photos of your own collection they have a trading post that allows you to ask questions um of different members of the knot right and then they also have like a wanted if someone's looking for something specific or if someone's trying to get rid of some of their ties did did you peruse any of the uh for sale ties or any of the ties for sale i looked through it i saw more of the wanted like looking for a specific type of tie with you know this Series and you know different things that people were looking for, but yeah, another person had a collection of ties from the 1970s. I mean, all sorts of different things on there. Man, I bet those were ugly. Ties from yeah. the 70s. <laughs> they were, I, I think back to my dad's collection of ties <laughs> from the 1970s, and man, they were, they were huge. They, they were wide. Of, uh, yeah, most of your chest area. Yeah, if uh, if you couldn't find a napkin, you could always. Rely on your tie to catch gravy if you were uh, eating. Yeah, they were, na- they were, that's a good nasty tie, is uh, that was a, good, a yes, big, wide, was. ugly one. So, <laughs> now, you talked about members of this site. Um, mm-hmm. um, like so many of the uh, collectibles that we talk about on this show, there's always an association. I'm going to bet there's a tie collector association, right? The not, the not really is the collector's place for ties. That's what I found. But one of their most famous members is Dr. Ron Spark. Okay. And he has his own website called wildneckties.com. Okay. And he also has a wealth of information. He collects ties himself. I, I forget if it was over 5,000 he has. Jeez. And, and he only wears vintage. I mean, he is not going out into the realm of modern day ties at all. He is 
strictly vintage. So is anything like before 1980, is that considered a vintage tie? Yes. Okay. I, even, you know, what I mainly saw from like the 60s back, but, you know, but I would think even in 70s, you know, by today's standards, absolutely, that would be considered vintage. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Sparks has also written a book, and I thought this was a cute title, Fit to be Tied. Oh, yeah. Ties of the 40s and early 50s. Dr. Spark, or, yeah, Dr. Spark wrote that with Ron Dyer. Okay. There may have been another author. And that book retails at Amazon for about $15. Ooh, that's very reasonable. Several, yeah, very reasonable. There's some other books, too. Um, Popular and Collectible Neckties, 1955 to Present mm-hmm. by Roseanne Ettinger. Yes. $30 available on Amazon. And then this is also a cute title, too. The Ties That Blind. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Oh, that's, that's funny. By, yeah, by Michael J. Goldberg, and that also retails for $30. And these are available at Amazon.com, right? Yes, all three of those books are available at Amazon. I personally liked Jerry Garcia's ties before he passed away. The uh, yep. One of the founders of, um, oh shoot, what was, The Grateful Dead, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, he had some great ties. He did, and, and I did uncover his ties in my research. Oh. You know, they can't really attribute a value to those ties yet because of how many were made. It's going to be down the road that we'll be able to start seeing what the, the actual value will be because at this point they're still in circulation. Mm-hmm. But as people wear them and, you know, they're destroyed, unfortunately, it will depend on how many are left and what the demand is. So I wasn't able to determine a value for those ties yet. But those they, he did some a really great job with ties. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought they were, uh, when you talked about the ties that blind, that's what reminded me of my uh, of my Garcia ties. And I still wear mine occasionally. Cool. Yeah. Well, keep it in good condition. It'll be worth something someday, hopefully. It will be hanging in my closet until time immemorial, you there know. You Who knows? Well, you know, Harold, I always look at eBay, too. Oh, yeah. I did that for this yeah. as well. And again, I did not just search on the general neckties. I did vintage neckties. Yes. And over 4,000 hits. Get out. I know. And the most popular was going for $490. And it was a bolo tie. Yeah. Not even a necktie. Jeez. (laughs) That's incredible. I know, but it was made with like turquoise and, you know, something else. Still. Yeah. It was very Southwestern. Just the the sheer number of Mm -hmm. neckties that people consider collectible. I know. You just discover the coolest stuff. Well, the thing is, too, is not only, are, you know, you can collect them, but ties can be recycled or reused or refashioned into other things. Like? People make quilts. Lots of people make quilts. No kidding. Um, you can make necklaces. I've seen dresses, wallets, chairs, stuffed animals for children. You know, in places to find them, you know, if you, yard sales, garage sales, even like thrift stores like Goodwill or Salvation Army, where you can get ties for like a dollar. Yeah. If you're a crafter that's going to repurpose these ties into something else, that's a great deal. I had all of it. all of my old uh, college T-shirts and uh, oh, different events that we did when I was in school. My wife took all of those and made them into uh, a quilt. Yeah, it's very popular. Because mm-hmm. I, I certainly couldn't wear any of them anymore. Right. But um, <laughs> only because they must have really, really shrunk. Marla should not eat things in the dryer on high. <laughs> yeah, doggone it. 
But anyway, the idea of making quilts out of ties, that's a, that's a terrific idea. Yeah, isn't that? I mean, you know, moments of your life, right? Because you usually wear a tie either, like you said, for work or if it's a, an important occasion. Special occasions. So, yeah. So, I mean, that would be nice because you kind of remember those occasions. When well, you would well with Father's them. Day behind us, um, dads everywhere will be wondering, after they hear this, is this tie potentially a collectible? And should I hang on to it? And the answer is absolutely. Hang on to them. Well, Heather, thank you so much. That was uh, that was terrific, and uh, we always learn so much listening to you here Thanks, on the Collector Show. Nice <laughs> Next week, I don't know what we're going to do, but we will definitely be back with another edition of the Collector Show. So stay tuned, come back, and tell your friends. And thank you for listening to the Collector Show. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you some art. Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. I'd be rich.